Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm delighted to have as my guest Dr. Mary Fisher, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Physical Therapy in the School of Education and Health Sciences at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Mary, welcome. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about an article that she and her colleagues published in the PTJ Special Issue on Oncology Rehabilitation. It's entitled Comparison of Upper Extremity Function in women with and without a history of breast cancer. I'll do a little summary of your study, Mary, and then we'll talk about it, if that's okay. That sounds great. Uh, the objective of this cross-sectional study was to compare upper extremity function between women treated for breast cancer more than 12 months in the past and women without cancer. 59 women diagnosed with breast cancer with a mean post-surgical treatment time of 51 months were compared with women who did not have breast cancer. The investigators divided their sample into three groups, those with breast cancer involving the non-dominant limb, those with breast cancer involving the dominant limb, and then control women without breast cancer. In the long term, women with breast cancer had lower self-reported shoulder function than women without breast cancer. Range of motion and strength were lower among women who had experienced cancer on the non-dominant limb. Endurance was not significantly different across the three groups. So, Mary, my first question has to do with your comparison group, which is critical to your study. You did an ANOVA showing that there were no significant differences in potential confounders when you looked at age, body mass, and activity levels, which I thought was really very helpful. How did your control group differ from women in the general population of this age range? The control group was recruited from the general population in the Dayton area, and there is no indication that they performed differently than than the general population of the age range. However, because of our exclusion criteria, we were looking for women who had had no history of any shoulder or neck surgeries and no active shoulder impairment or pathology. So it is possible that the control group in our population may have been slightly healthier than the general population simply because we excluded anybody with current shoulder pathology. Why did you do that? I'm curious. We were looking at what happens with breast cancer treatment. So if women go into the breast cancer experience without any shoulder dysfunction, it would be make most sense to compare them to a population that also has no shoulder dysfunction. 
if we if we allowed the general population to have a shoulder pathology, it would actually confound our results, and we wouldn't be able to tell if the problems in the breast cancer group were due to the treatments or whether they were similar or different from a population of women without breast cancer. It struck me that more than half, about 60% of your sample of women with breast cancer who answered the question about prior rehabilitation for their shoulder had no previous rehabilitation. And of those who did receive rehab, the majority received uh, lymphedema treatment and education with a small proportion receiving exercise to improve motion. Did this high level of no or minimal rehab surprise you? Unfortunately, not at all. It, it seems to me that physical rehab for postoperative management for cancer is not a standard of care. When this study was conducted, it was conducted on a population of women who had received their treatment prior to the groundbreaking work by Stout and her colleagues showing that a prospective interval surveillance model following breast cancer treatment can mitigate the impact of treatment on function. So these, these women were actually receiving standard of care, which is not to refer to rehabilitation, so it didn't surprise me. What's said today is that even when I'm working with the medical community, most individuals believe that the primary problem that develops after cancer treatment in, in women with breast cancer is lymphedema. When we know that other functional impact has a higher incidence than lymphedema. So it's, again, um, a miscommunication and a misunderstanding on the part of healthcare professionals about the role of rehab following cancer treatment. So it still hasn't penetrated the medical community? Not on a large scale. There are definitely pockets, mm -hmm. uh, but, but not, a, not a change in the national standard of care. Well, of course, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do a special issue, so I'm delighted that uh, we can draw more attention to this uh, issue. Let's talk a little bit about your findings. When you compared women with breast cancer with your controls, women who were treated for breast cancer reported higher disability, regardless of which limb was involved, and this was despite a median duration of um, over 51 months since surgical treatment. So this was a long time after surgical treatment. Yes. And then when you compared your results to the general population, your sample of women with breast cancer were more similar in function to the um, general population, indicating that women with breast cancer can expect recovery of function that was similar to the population but definite uh, residual functional limitations as compared to your controls. Why did you compare uh, your women to both the general population and your controls, and what's your interpretation of that finding? So in, in comparison, we, we certainly looked at our healthy population, but as I stated earlier, that population had no history of any shoulder pathology or surgery. So we knew that they were sort of super healthy if you want to consider that. And we wanted to look at what our findings look like compared to a general population. So that's where we get this disconnect, where we have our uh, sample of women with breast cancer having a mean score within reason of a general population of published norms. 
But I do still believe that the more relevant finding is that the comparison to the sample of women without breast cancer. If the women um, who are in our control group represent a healthy population without any history of breast cancer, or excuse me, if these women in our control group represent a healthy population without any history of arm dysfunction, we want to assume that the women going into their cancer diagnosis also had no arm dysfunction. So we wanted to compare it to a, a similar um, status, as it were. So yeah. um, ultimately, you know, when we look at the general population, if you look at the research looking at the mean DASH score in the general population, that group is not controlled for and likely includes people who have shoulder dysfunction. That's likely why the, the results are, are closer with the published norms rather than with my control group. Yeah. Yet when you um, looked at these women, over 20% who were treated for breast cancer scored greater than 20 on the DASH, which was your measure of disability. How clinically relevant is the score of greater than 20 on that instrument? Well, that's an interesting question as well. Looking in again at the general uh, population score of a DASH, if we include the full general population, uh, there's literature reported by Hunsacker and colleagues who report that the DASH score is about a 10. So this uh, score of greater than 20 still exceeds a full general population, male and female, everybody included. The uh, writers of the DASH, which I believe is the Institute on Work in Canada do not provide any published cut points to indicate a level of function. So they don't they don't talk about minimal, moderate, and, and severe disability. However, clinically most therapists would rate a score of greater than twenty as some level of disability and probably rate it on the mild to moderate level. I think that's significant because as you stated, this is fifty one months after having yeah treatment, and there's still mild to moderate disability reported. Yeah, it's very striking to me, actually. I would have thought they would have returned to more um, normal function by then. That leads me to my next question, because it's also revealing when you looked at women who had cancer affecting their non-dominant limb, they demonstrated less upper extremity range of motion and less upper extremity strength then your control sample, they had 23% less motion. Um, limitation to higher range of motion was seen in nearly 60% of participants. So what, what do you see as the clinical implications of that finding? Well, first off, let's define what the limitation to higher range of motion. What I'm categorizing that as anything greater than 150 degrees elevation is sort of a higher range of motion. And this study shows that even in a population of women who are 51 months out, they are not achieving that magic, magical sort of 150 degrees range of motion. I think it's also important to realize that 180 is not really what we're ang angling for, that the AAOS, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons norm of 180 elevation, was not even seen in our control population. So when we talk about 23% less motion, we're comparing it to a group of individuals who are not even demonstrating 180 degrees elevation. So 
that magic number of 140 and 150 degrees, if you can't achieve that level of motion, you have difficulty reaching higher shelves. You can also have um, other implications uh, and impact on ADLs, such as self-care, like uh, washing hair, taking care of hair, showering, bathing. It can also impact rec recreational activities that require that greater motion, such as overhead sports like tennis. And then if you think about that, that is where it circles back to impact of self-report of function as measured by the DASH. And then if, if we look at your non-dominant um, extremity finding, that would suggest, correct me if I'm wrong, but it suggests to me that that's potentially a high-risk group of women who are having cancer in the non-dominant side because that's where you found the most disability this long uh, after surgery? Correct. And that, you know, was a surprising finding for us. We didn't necessarily anticipate that the dominance would impact uh, the level of function uh, four to five years following breast cancer treatment. So that surprised us. That makes us want to look at more um, more into that and, and research why that may be. Uh, we do know from other studies that the non-dominant arm is used less than the dominant arm, and perhaps that's why the recovery is incomplete because there's not as much natural motion that occurs in that non-dominant arm. But it is something that uh, yeah. healthcare providers absolutely have to be attuned to. And it was, the deficits were substantial in the 26 to 28 percent deficit range compared to your controls. Uh, that was strength impairments, but yes, yeah. um, they yeah. they definitely had uh, significantly less strength in their control group. Um, how how that impacts daily function and, and you know the, the clinical relevance is a little bit more difficult to identify because while there are strength norms, we don't really have values that plus you need X amount of strength to complete um, Y task, whereas we do know how much motion you need to complete certain tasks. That's a little bit harder to tease out, but I think that a 26 to 28 percent deficit is, is significant enough that we need to pay attention to that. Did you have enough of a sample to look at whether or not there was a correlation between the strength and range deficits and your disability um, deficits? I did not look at that, but I think that that would be a very interesting uh, sub-analysis to complete. I, I think so that's the kind of size, the assumption. Yeah, right. I think the sample size is large enough to do that, but I have not looked at that. Yeah, I think that would be interesting and relevant. Now, the one finding that uh, was really a negative finding was the endurance measure was not impaired compared to the uh, the comparison group. But and you talked a little bit in your article about some of the concerns you had over the the measure that you used of upper extremity muscle endurance. Do you think that finding was mostly because of the concerns about the measure, or do you think there's a real finding there? I think it still is a limitation of the measure. The FIT-HANSA, which is the functional impairment test for the hand and neck, shoulder, and arm, has been validated in the population of individuals with shoulder impingement and rotator cuff pathology but it hasn't been used in a population of individuals with cancer. So what we found was there's a lot of ceiling effects 
um, present, and people were able to complete the full test, whether or not they were in the control group or the uh, group with cancer. So it's hard to tease out where differences might exist. Yeah. I think our limitation is we don't have good clinical tests to measure muscular endurance. Perhaps a, a Biodex or a Cybex, an isokinetic device, can tease that out, but I was looking at tests that could be replicated in a clinical environment, and we we just lack that in our in our profession. I have looked at two other um, muscular endurance tests. One's called the Upper Body Strength and Endurance Test. I also had sailing issues with that one. And then I've, I have since looked at another muscular endurance test called the upper limb lift test that requires lifting 4% of the body weight from the shoulder down about 10 inches and, and back up to a metronome pace. Um, and in some ways that seems like a derivation of the fit hands up, but that test yet hasn't yet been fully validated to see if, if it can measure muscular endurance. Well, Dr. Fisher, I want to thank you both for taking the time today to talk with me and to share with our listeners your study, and I, I appreciate you publishing it in PTJ, and I would encourage our listeners of this podcast to go take a look at the work. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 